Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors podcast. My name is Anurag Grana, and I'm a technology analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. I also have my colleague, Tamlin Basin, with me. We're delighted to have the CEO of Endava, John Cotterell, as our guest today. We are hoping John will give us some insights around emerging technologies and the key growth initiatives that the company is undertaking. So, John, can we start off by you giving us a little bit of background of yourself, uh, your career history, as well as a little bit of the background of Endava? Sure. And, and Anurag, thank you very much for inviting me on this podcast. I'm looking forward to this. So just starting with me, I was an engineer initially, then I did an MBA, joined Capgemini, which is how I moved into the IT services world, spent 10 years there, uh, actually started a new business within Capgemini, uh, which was the business process outsourcing operation. Got the bug for starting new businesses and went and started another. That was in 98. It was a strange time. So I sold the business, you know, literally 18 months after starting it. And then February 2000, I set up in Indaba. Since then, my, my history has been totally entwined with Indaba. So a little bit about Indaba. Coming into February 2000, I was seeing an emerging trend where bringing the creative into the engineering and creating multidisciplinary teams that would enable you to ideate a new product, have a real consumer or user mindset around what you wanted that product to do, as well as the engineering capability being a real need that I saw emerging. And so we set Indaba up as a multidisciplinary teams-based business that would enable us to do ideation work with clients, ideate what what new product could be, how technology could have an impact on their business models, and then and have, a, have the engineering capability through that multidisciplinary team in early enough in the process. So when you wanted to get it into the market and scale it into large systems that would be resilient in a production environment, that that path was, was clean and fast, um, therefore enabling faster to market product, better product that was going to scale. And as you're aware, many organizations, even today have to go to four or five different organizations to buy that capability with all the handoff issues between them from the creatives at one end through the product design, and then the engineering teams that they buy from different organizations. So that's been an opposition in the market. You know, John, one of the things that has always excited me about this space, and I've covered this IT services industry for about 18 years now, is it's one of the largest areas where anything tech spending happens, you know, north of a trillion dollars. Yet the market share for even the top vendor is, is no more than 7 8%, no matter how you cut it. And it's remarkable how smaller companies keep on coming and disrupting the space. Now, in, in your case, either when you started the old business or where you are right now, what is the secret sauce for you to grow, you know, let's say 7, 8, 10, 15 times the overall industry in a market that's just growing 3, three to 5%? How does one go out and start a business and then start to grow at a much rapid pace? Yeah, so for us, it is that multidisciplinary capability that actually enables us to create exciting products for clients faster. So our, our challenge is to get a client to try us, to see how we can help them ideate new product, new ways of technology impacting their business, and then scale it across the organization. So, you know, for us each year, we get about 20% of our growth comes from our existing clients spending more. And then the new clients are just adding that little increment to take us to, you know, our average sort of 30% growth that we do on a compound annual growth rate. 
basis. So, so it's hugely driven by existing customers expanding what they're doing with us as they see how the model works. And, and that's what drives the, the outperformance in terms of the top line against the rest of the industry. It's worth saying that a lot of the companies that we're working with are the big organizations out there, the big corporates who, in order to do this, they need a bit of that startup DNA. And essentially by employing Endava, we bring that, that faster way of working, that that more imaginative ideation approach that enables them to come up with a new product and then get it into the market and scale it that, that startups are doing in their industry and they're struggling to respond to. So that's part of what we deliver as value to our clients. John, the good hallmark of for any company is when a large portion of your revenue comes from the existing client base. So I completely get that. But perhaps even take a step back and say, you know, if you are a large a bank or a manufacturing company or any other vertical who is your, you know, key client? Who is your marquee client and how do you go about doing it in terms of, you know, get, attracting that client or winning that deal and then, you know, mining that customer? I mean, we have a very reoriented approach. So we're looking at the different technologies that are coming through, technology waves, if you like, and how they're impacting different industries and therefore able to go to clients or prospective clients with propositions around how they can respond to the technology waves that are coming through. So, you know, that's how we seek to get the hook, if you like. The out of that interest then comes the opportunity to do a, you know, normally quite quick project, a few weeks to show them how that technology applies and how it can be implemented in their business and in their market. So examples, let me just give some examples across a few industries. So in payments, there's been a whole shift recently to real-time payments and the the new sorts of products and services that you can build around that platform that you couldn't do in the old sort of acquiring, issuing type payments environment. Obviously banking, you can see the move to digital banking, retail, you know, now getting into omni-channel and the whole challenge of having gone online of saying, actually, we need to, that needs to operate across stores and de deliveries, but also people coming and doing pickups and so on. Automotive massively affected by the, the trends that are emerging around AI and the creation of autonomous vehicles and how automotive companies are going to respond to that industry shift. Insurance, the shift, they're making progress on data, but actually as that converts into the AI space, how, how that's going to apply, how it affects the way in which they, you know, do their underwriting with the way in which the actuaries work and so on. Media, you've got the metaverse coming and, you know, I think around the corner we'll see devices that change the consumer experience, adding an augmented reality type uh, capability, if you like, and that's going to massively change and raise consumer expectations on the way in which they interact with businesses. Healthcare, the, the whole AI diagnostic space is, is really gathering momentum. So we'd go to each of those industries with propositions, with technology capability that we can very quickly bring to life through an ideation process. And then as the clients bite on it, they scale it into production. As the products have success in the market, they want to take them into new jurisdictions. They want to add new capabilities. And so we see our teams expanding and expanding as, as we help the client leverage on the success they're having in the market. So from a competitive landscape, who do you compete with most when you are going to market with that? You know, our services is a highly fragmented industry and there are way too many players in the market right now. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the, 
in the sorts of accounts that we're talking about, it's the big players who are already there, the Accentures, the Cognizance and so on, many of them. So our differentiation against them is that ability to do that multidisciplinary teams that can take things from ideation right through to production. You know, if you look at Accenture, they've spent a huge amount of money buying in the creative space, but they essentially, they have them under the one roof, but they don't integrate them into multidisciplinary teams. And that, that is, that is classically true of all of the large players. So they haven't addressed that question of how you get creatives working alongside engineers to actually come up with better product and get it to market faster. So that's how we differentiate against them. No, it's a fair point. And then, you know, from a go-to-market point of view, is your strategy very similar to the rest of the industry or do you have any differentiation over there as well? So our differentiation is around how the waves of technology apply in different industries and, and driving, having conversations with clients around that. So, you know, the characteristic of Indalvo is to win business through opening up those conversations and then getting a proof of concept or an ideation piece of work going. So we very rarely win a new client through an RFP process. Whereas I think with many of our competitors, they're often entering through an RFP process and it's, it's a completely different approach to winning business and building relationships. So I, I one would assume you have a very high degree of single source or direct source. Is, is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. We're, and, and you see in our customer base, we have quite a broad range of customers, many of whom are in those early stages of exploring a business opportunity with us. The good news about it is it gives us really good visibility of the growth in the pipeline that's coming through from customers as they're expanding their work with us. So if I was to say that, you know, what would be your key growth drivers for the next three to five years? You know, would it be expansion through geography, through a different vertical, through, you know, more digging into your existing client space? How would you rate, you know, the top three or four things that you are looking at this point? Number one on geography, we're wanting to push on going global. And so we're expanding in what to us is the rest of the world, i.e. outside of Europe and North America and seeing a lot of opportunities there to, to build that up. So that's about 3% of our business. If you look out over that five-year period, I'd love to see that get up to 10%. And in, in the context of a business that's growing at 30% a year, that means really hitting the accelerator in those areas outside of Europe and North America. Then the second big area for us is across the geographies that we're, we're in, uh, we tend to have strengths in uh, in one or two industry areas and actually multiplying those across the geographies is, is a big area of expansion for us. So for instance, payments, we started very strong in the, in the UK, we've moved into Europe as real-time payments is getting into the US and Canada. Uh, we're, we're massively expanding that and now seeing opportunities in Australia and, uh, and Singapore and indeed the Middle East. So we. You know, that ability to multiply capability that we've developed in, in one region into others is also a big expansion opportunity for us. So from, you know, just logical point of view, are there any emerging technologies that you are focused more compared to the others? If you were to, to look at your, you know, portfolio of technology practices, is there one that excites you more than the other? Because you see different technologies you know, biting harder in different industries, it's a little bit more spread out than that. Maybe, maybe I can describe it in, there are some that are more established. So you've got sort of digital, if, if we can call consumer facing technologies that you've got agile as an approach to delivering, 
there are some emerging capabilities that are, are very real now, but but not fully, not not well adopted. Things like the data move to AI, the metaverse, and and five G, and the way in which that could change consumer experience and expectations. Cloud, or, you know, you could argue whether that's in the established category or emerging. I think it's still emerging because I think a lot of what's done been done in cloud has been more lift and shift rather than really exploiting the capabilities of cloud platforms. And then you start moving to some that are coming over the hill, but, but could be massive five years down the line, things like blockchain, quantum, quantum computing, that's probably 10 years down the line and so on. And those apply to different industries in different ways. I went through that earlier, so I won't revisit it. Within cloud itself, and, I'm, and I agree with you, we are st still so much in the early innings, a lot of room to grow. Is there one particular cloud vendor you're more pivoted towards? Are you more in applications or infrastructure? And, you know, how are you approaching that, that particular ecosystem? So today we're more in the applications and we do work with Azure and GCP, Google, and, um, uh, actually do a lot of work on all of those platforms. One of the areas that we're working on quite a lot with clients, and it's actually starting to really accelerate now is how you, how you create cloud agnostic applications. So that actually the client has the ability to shift clouds relatively easily. And that's, that's really getting traction at the moment. Now, within that, you know, uh, one of the biggest things that we are dealing with right now in the industry is a massive shortage of labor. You know, what are some of the things that you are doing to, you know, employ people, retain talent and, it's, you know, ensuring that your employee attrition rate remains low? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, so that's built in quite deeply into our business model. So we operate on a nearshore basis, about 90% of our people are in nearshore locations, about 10% close to client in, in the US, the UK and Europe and so on. And so that business model gives us access to great people in nearshore locations, places like uh, Romania, Serbia, Colombia, and so on. And, you know, in those countries, in Dava essentially becomes a destination of choice for the best people in the country because we give them access to the most challenging technologies and most interesting applications for large companies across the world. And that makes us a very attractive career destination for people in those countries. And then the second aspect is that as you look at our growth each year, we, we get about 30% of our people join as graduates from university. So we we're able to get great people by building strong relationships with the universities, teaching on some of their courses and so on. And then we get about 40% recommended by an existing endowment who says, I've worked with someone before, they were really good. I think they'd fit the culture and so on. And they recommend them to join us. And that's a great way of drawing people in. And then it's only the last 30% that we're sort of hunting for in the market in a, in a typical headhunt way. So you put all of those things together and actually we have, we have great access to labor and great ways of bringing people into the organization. It's always a fight. It's a, it's a market for talent out there that is very competitive, but you know, we've seen ourselves positioned well for it and able to bring good people in and, and continue to scale the business on that side. That is just as important as, as the customer side that we've been talking about so far. Fair point. So John, when I look at the, you know, the growth aspects of the industry, you are amongst the top quartile. I, I, you know, there are very few companies that are growing at this rate at that scale. And your margins are actually pretty decent as well. You know, in, in your mind, when you look out 
a few years, three to five years, how do you think the margin structure of the company will play out given the dynamics of, you know, labor, wage inflation and other things and pricing pressures, et cetera? What's your, what's your near-term and long-term view on, on your margin structure? I mean, if you look at us since IPO, you know, we, we've, it's been four years since IPO, so we've tripled the revenue in that period and actually improved the margins from around 15% to just over the 20% adjusted PBT level. So our expectation going forward is that the margin side will stabilize at that level and that the rate rises and cost inflation with staff will largely balance out, but that we can continue to aspire to tripling in the next four years or so and, and do that on an ongoing basis. That is a, about the level where we feel comfortable with the, the numbers of new people that we're bringing into the organization and, and therefore our ability to make sure the culture remains strong and, and people understand and how we operate and continue to deliver to clients in the indelible way, i.e. We don't, we don't grow too fast and burn ourselves out. Great, John. John, one more question for me, and then I will pass it on to Tamlin. You know, you've been around for over 20 years. You know, how do your customers behave in a slowdown? And have you seen anything different this time? We've been through three slowdowns since setting the business up, arguably another one coming. And, you know, during each of those, we actually found that we continued to grow between that 20 and 30%. And, you know, we didn't get pulled back by the slowdown in spend that we're applying in their, in their technology space. Now, I believe the reason for that is that what we're working on with clients is, is the transformative technology change arenas that are going to be important for them over the long term. And they, they don't pull back from spending on that. Um, you know, given these are, these are large multinational companies, they don't pull back on that as they go into seeing recessions in different parts of their organization or, or around the globe and so on. And so we've seen sustained growth. As you look in at this oncoming situation, we we see confidently continued growth through this period, and we're not seeing any signs of a slowdown impacting Indora. Yeah, fair point. John, let me pass it on to my colleague, Tamlin, who will take it away from here. Hi. Thanks, Anurag. So John, interesting to hear that you're, you're not expecting a slowdown. That, that, that's great news. But I am wondering, do the conversations change with the clients? Are they looking for something maybe different to sort of gear up for, for a potential sort of macroeconomic disruption? And this is sort of specifically, I, I know that you've moved away from being so heavily focused on Europe, but I do believe it's still over 60% of your revenue. I, I think people expect the pressures to be a little stronger in Europe. So wondering how those conversations are going. Yeah. So, I mean, number one, we've got to set the context that these are, these are long programs of change when, when clients are building products and driving them in the market. And so there's a, there's a stability to what a customer's trying to do in terms of their backlog of work that we're helping them create and then working through for them. And because, because the technologies that we're working on and the things that we're doing are, are such long-term in terms of impact, we see clients carrying on with that spend and, and trimming back on the other, I don't know, more day-to-day, -day, keep the lights on type activity in order to keep the investment available to, to push into the space that we're in. In terms of the geo questions, you know, most of our clients are big global companies. And so they're, they're looking at spend uh, in terms of the things that they do with us, more in terms of their their global perspective than the specific geography that 
they happen to commission the work in. And we report our geos as, as do most people in our industry by where the work is commissioned. So for instance, our, our two largest clients are commissioned most of their work with us in the UK under that Europe banner, but they're actually US global businesses. So even although we're reporting a huge proportion of the business out of Europe, there's a very large part of it that's actually driven by ultimately by a US business. Uh, and so these things balance out from a, a regional or geography point of view, we find. Great. Turning a little bit to, to that delivery model, and, and you touched on it a little bit with Anurag, but sort of the um, the nearshore close to location delivery model, obviously, it is not the typical norm that we're seeing with ID services. You can talk about why you adopted that approach and, and also how you're able to you know generate pretty healthy margins despite sort of not going the offshore route that so many others do. Yeah. So, you know, I touched on the multidisciplinary approach that we have to putting our teams together. What we've found is that that works with a nearshore approach. You can deliver agile where you've got teams who are operating in a nearshore environment. Nearshore meaning a similar time zone to the client that you're working with so that you can do daily stand-ups with the client on the call. You can, you can drive a multidisciplinary team where, where it maybe has some of the creatives close to the client in London and some of the engineering team maybe in Bucharest or somewhere like that. Whereas if you switch to an offshore model, that dynamic changes. So organizations who run offshore, they, they tend to put people close to client and then the people close to client sort of interpret the, the specs and the requirements and send those off to the offshore location to work on. And you don't, you don't get quite the same team dynamic that you can get with Nearshore. And so that's why we've focused on Nearshore and continue to do it and why we've not gone for the offshore route. Got it. Thanks. Turning a little bit specifically to sort of the vertical market that you serve, I think you've got pretty high exposure with the payments, which you mentioned a few times and the, the financial services writ large. Focusing a little bit on the payments, I mean, that's a, a, a sector that's facing just enormous amount of disruptions, both currently and, and disruptions heading down the pipeline. How are you helping your clients um, sort of embrace all those disruptions and, and helping them be prepared to sort of grow within the industry? Yeah. So, I mean, we've got a very, very broad experience across all the different ways of making payments, all different standards and so on that you need to interact with in order to effect a payment. And, and we've worked with some of our clients to build some of the rails, frankly, that some of the new payment platforms are going to run across things like the real-time payments platform that's being rolled out in various countries. We've built a lot of the rails that enable those platforms to operate. And so when we're having conversations with clients around what you could do with a, a real-time payment solution rather than a acquiring-based solution or a card-based solution, we're in a really, really strong position to help them understand the benefits that they might get from that, whether that be the ability to set up wallets, get to the unbanked in, in some, some countries of the world, or, um, or, or just create much more personal P2P type capabilities or many, many other areas. It also is an area that is incredibly fertile for us in terms of moving that capability into other industries. So helping banks to change their payment infrastructures that then plug into the payment platforms that sit behind it, helping retailers to start to develop some some payments capability that it, things like buy now, pay later, that helps them retain the data and actually keep a better handle on what's going on, micropayments 
that are going to become more important in the mobility space and so on across other industries. Coming out of the pandemic, have some of the discussions with some of these clients changed? I guess specifically looking at banks and financial institutions, have you noticed they're more motivated to really step on the gas in terms of getting those digital digital transformation projects underway and, and hitting those next steps to sort of minimize disruptions in, in the event of any future macro pressures? Yeah, I think what, what the what the pandemic did was it raised broad awareness of technology transformation and the waves of technology that are coming through and how fundamental that can be to transforming your business and maintaining a competitiveness in the market. And so we've seen organizations engage much more readily with, you know, what might the new products be that we that we should get our heads around, do an ideation activity, and, and then start to look at moving that into production and so on. And, and some of the board, I don't know, skepticism that, that existed pre-COVID has ameliorated a little bit, you know, probably board skepticism that probably arose out of a lot of failed IT projects in the past, but actually starting to see that that new technologies with the flexibility that they have can actually be applied pretty quickly and have a pretty big impact on your business. So that's opened the doors for a lot of conversations that were perhaps harder to have pre-pandemic. And in terms of you being able to sort of build these next generation technologies, how do you position that within the company? Where's the focus on R&D? Where's the focus on getting engineers sort of well-versed and what is driving a lot of those changes? So what's your, how do you approach all of that? Yeah. So we, you know, we, we carry within the business a fairly high bench compared to other companies. We do that for two reasons. One, so that it can facilitate the faster growth than we have with other companies, because that, that means we need more people available to deploy into new projects than most people in our industry. And then the the second reason is that we can use people on the bench to actually explore new technologies, come up with what we call accelerators, which are sort of pre-bottled ways of using technology that enables us to run some of our ideation programs a bit faster with clients and, and get to a a visual result much more quickly. So we use, we use our bench essentially to do the R and D. We also have, you know, our CTO in Woods is, is a well-known player in the industry and he drives some specific investment programs where, where we want to get up to grips with new technology or a new capability that's coming through so that we can tell the story and, and bring it to life in the industries we're working with about how that, that technology wave is going to impact them. Great. That's interesting. When you speak with Anurag, you talked about sort of as you were working in the services industry, you saw some niches that you knew Indava could potentially exploit. I want to know, what are you seeing now? Where are the next areas that Indava can sort of grow in and maybe lead the charge in terms of exploiting the next opportunities? Yeah. So we, I mean, we tend to think about it from an industry perspective. Um, I think you're asking more from a technology perspective. So from a technology perspective, there's the data shift into AI that's going on, and that has application across quite a few industries, insurance, automotive, healthcare, and we're, we're good at using the tools that are emerging that enables that shift to happen with clients. The overlap between 5G and the metaverse, augmented reality, and so on, I, I see as being very, very strong. I think that's going to massively accelerate over the next five years because it's going to change consumer experiences and expectations dramatically. Cloud is, a, is an underlying but long, long road to go down in terms of being able to exploit the the basic infrastructure and capabilities that you get with cloud, as opposed to just using the, the tin to, to avoid having a data center. And then blockchain, we're doing quite a bit in blockchain. And I, I think that's, or, 
or the underlying technology, the distributed ledger technology is, is going to be a big growth area just because of the ability to, you know, be a single source of truth and the implications and that that has across different industries to, to enable things. And we've done, we've done quite a bit in that space, but I think that's a huge growth area as well. And then I throw in frictionless payments just because that applies across so many industries and actually enables industries to operate in a different way if they can sort out the payments side. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a fascinating area. We've, we've talked a good amount about payments and, and sort of financial services at large, but what are some of the other verticals that you serve, that you serve and, and what areas are impacting clients in those spaces? Yeah, so media is a big area for us. So that covers everything from games and the entertainment side, if you like, the broadcast side with streaming and the ability to, you know, get, get product in a Netflix type way to market. The, the metaverse is, is a growing area, quite often overlapping with blockchain. So, you know, in the gaming space, you see metaverse activity and then the desire to buy gaming artifacts and be able to hold them in a, in a blockchain so that you can use those across different games with a provider is a growing area. Viewing them, if you like, in a, in a virtual gallery, being able to buy them. So the payments dimension of it, all of these things sort of cross industry coming together to transform media. Retail, I touched on a high level, that shift from being, you know, having two channels of digital and bricks and mortar and actually creating an omni-channel capability that properly integrates and seeing a lot of activity around that. And probably the biggest one is the mobility space, just that shift from, so mobility being the movement of people or goods from one place to another. Um, and there's just a massive growth of activity around mobility as autonomous vehicles and their capabilities is starting to come up over the horizon, whether that be, you know, in, in the vehicle, seeing some of that autonomy technology or whether it's, you know, with the consumer and how they would buy, you know, getting from their home in London to a to a hotel in, in Washington and, and all the services that would go with buying that. So there's, there's a huge amount of change in mobility, which we're seeing grow very strongly. Yeah, very interesting. I, I do want to try to pin you down a little bit on Metaverse. Can you tell me a little bit about how you're actually implementing that for clients who come to you looking for sort of information on how they want, they can design their Metaverse presence and, and how to approach sort of this oncoming space? So in, in media, one of the areas that's growing really strongly is, is how you can use NFTs to create, you know, to as to be an asset that people want to hold. Particularly, we're seeing a lot of activity in the gaming space. So you can create galleries where people go and view NFTs and then buy them and then use them within the games that they're playing and actually use them across multiple games increasingly. The, in the, in the, the area that I think is going to be really exciting is when some of the new technologies, perhaps glasses that are going to come down the line at some point will start to transform the user experience. And so some clients that we're working with are starting to prepare for what that might look like and how that is going to change the customer experience and the expectations that they have about how they interact with you as a business. So it's that combination of the augmented reality with the, the content that's, that's going to be quite transformative looking forward. So that's, you know, that's a reasonably near term change that we anticipate coming over the horizon. Great. Thanks for that color on that. I, I have one final question. I'm turning back to Anurag. 
I'm looking at your sort of revenue growth terms. It looks like you're probably on pace to top the $1 billion in annual revenue in the very near term. Is that something that's sort of meaningful to a company like you? And if so, sort of how do you continue driving that growth going forward, even after you hit that? Yeah. So, I mean, w- one of the things that we talk about a lot is that our core purpose is all about people. It's about enabling our people to be the best that they can be. It's about doing a great job for the individuals who work in our clients. And, you know, growth is absolutely fundamental to fulfilling on that core purpose. Growth uh, enables us to create the opportunities for our people to grow in their careers and to expand their roles and responsibilities and therefore to be, be the best that they can be. So, yes. Growth is actually very important to us as a business, for the people in the business, for for our customers, but also, of course, as you're touching on, for investors. Um, and we see that sweet spot of growth being in in headcount terms about twenty to twenty uh, twenty to thirty percent, which normally converts to revenue growth about five percent higher. So that twenty five to thirty five percent growth space, and and you know if you if you portray that forward, that's that's where our aspiration over the next four years to triple again in size comes from. Great. Thanks, John. I'm going to hand it back to Anurag now. Thanks, Sam. John, it was really a pleasure talking to you and learning so much about a company that I'm sure a lot of people may not know, despite such awesome growth rate and margin structure. So best wishes from all of us for the the near future. And I look forward to having you next year as well. Great. Thanks, Anurag. Thanks, Tamlin. Enjoyed that.